Hi everyone, this is Brant Van Rokel, lead pastor of Christ City Kitsilano, and I want to let you know about a couple of things. First, if you're not a part of a local church, let me invite you to join us at 5th Avenue Cinema on Burrard Street at 9.30 a.m. We meet every Sunday morning for worship, word, and sacrament, and we'd love for you to join us there. Second, if you are new and you want to get connected, let me say welcome. Christ City Church Kitsilano is a neighborhood church committed to making missional disciples for the sake of the neighborhood. If you want to hear more about what God has called us to here in Kitsilano, then please reach out to me at brant at christcitychurch.ca or you can visit christcitychurch.ca slash Kitsilano. The scripture reading today is taken from Exodus chapter 4, verses 18 to 31. Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, Go in peace. And the Lord said to Moses and Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all the men who were seeking your life are dead. So Moses took his wife and his sons and had them ride on a donkey and went back to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the staff of God in his hand. And the Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. But I will harden his heart so he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, Let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. It was then that she said, A bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. The Lord said to Aaron, Go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he went and met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. And Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord with which he had sent him to speak and all the signs that he had commanded him to do. Then Moses and Aaron went together, gathered all the elders of the people of Israel. Aaron spoke all the words of the Lord that he had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people. And the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel, and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and they worshipped. This is the word of the Lord. You may all be seated. And as you're seated, I'll invite you to pray with me. Lord, we come to you and uh, we come this morning and we come, Lord, humbly confessing our need for you. Uh, God, you are so gracious in your love and your mercy and your care and your generosity towards us. We look to you now and we ask that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would minister to us through this word, through this passage of scripture in the book of Exodus. Lord, we confess it's a passage that's strange to us and um, we don't understand it just by reading it, Father. But would you help us to grow, to, to learn what it is speaking to us, that we might obey you, that we might take refuge in your love for us through Jesus, your Son. Help us now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I've been struck by my scripture reading this week in a particular way. 
I'm reading in the book of Joshua. Um, some of you guys are, are in Bible reading plans this year. I'm in the Bible reading plan from last year that I've not yet finished. And right now I'm in Joshua. Um, true confessions. And um, what I've been struck with in Joshua, which has been really helpful for me, um, is the profound way that God is a God who promises to be with Moses. See, from the moment of Moses' first call, through his questions that we've been looking at the last couple of weeks at Mount Horeb, to all that comes afterwards and how God will use Moses. Throughout the whole story, God is in this remarkable and patient and long-suffering and loving way with Moses. Through the whole of Moses' life, God never leaves him and God never forsakes him. In fact, in Joshua, where I've been reading, um, this is what brought it to mind because there, when God commissions the leader who comes after Moses, this man named Joshua, God speaks to Joshua in a way that, that Joshua would have understood as he looked at Moses' life. And he said to him in Joshua chapter 1, verses 5 to 6, and he encourages Joshua with these words, Just <clears throat> as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. And the profound way that I was with Moses in his life and all of the things that you've seen, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous. I think we need this word of encouragement this morning. Because if we're honest, to follow God in this world is difficult. And to obey him in this world is hard. And we often face our own doubts and confusion in our lives. Sometimes we face deep, lingering sin within us. Sometimes we grow weary and tired on the journey. But we don't have to face any of these things alone. So our passage shows us that God is a God who does not merely call us to obedience, but who also walks with us, who helps us, who corrects us, who encourages us as we step out in faith with him that we might be strong and courageous in our lives for him. That's what we see, I think, in this passage in Moses' life and actually what ought to be encouraging to us. A God who is with Moses as he leaves Mount Horeb and as Moses takes his first steps to follow him. And all along the way, here's God. I think in four points. God encouraging Moses to obey. God assuring Moses of salvation. God disciplining Moses in his sin. God filling Moses with thanksgiving. This will be our four points as we walk through and see the ways that God is, is with Moses as he leaves Mount Horeb and begins to follow God in obedience. So look at our first point. Let's see how God is with Moses, encouraging him to obey in verses 18 to 20a, the first part of 20a. The text says this. Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and he said to him, Please, let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, go in peace. And the Lord said to Moses and Midian, go back to Egypt for all the men who are seeking your life are dead. So Moses took his wife and his sons, had them ride on a donkey and went back to the land of Egypt. When we read these first verses, when we come to this text, I think it's important to remember what Moses' last words to Yahweh were. 
They're back in verse 13. I don't have it up on the screen, but if you have your Bibles, you can open it up and see. The last thing that Moses said to Yahweh when, when God was calling him to follow him to be the deliverer of his people is this. Oh my Lord, please send someone else. His last words in the text were a protest. And that's remarkable because God's already appeared to Moses at Mount Horeb. He's come to him. He's revealed himself to him. But as we've been looking at and as we've been seeing, Moses' conversion experience as a follower of God, it's not a sharp line in the sand where he immediately has no doubt or no questions or no struggles with obeying God. And yet in this text, what we see is that Moses does begin to obey. And he asks his father-in-law for permission to go see if his brothers are still alive. In this first step of obedience, God's with Moses, I think, in a particular way, encouraging his obedience. Okay, Moses, keep going. Because after Moses asked permission, then we read that God speaks to him again and again gives him a subsequent command. I think there's some time that's gone by between verse 18 and 19. I'm reading between the lines, but that's, that's how I'm wondering if this text should be read. And there God says, go back to Egypt, Moses, like I've told you. For all the men who were seeking your life are dead. See the way that God encourages Moses? God didn't have to share with Moses that all the men that were seeking his life were dead. God could have just said, go Moses, I've commanded you. Now trust me. But I think in this text we see in a subtle way that God knows Moses' weaknesses. And he knows that He's anxious about that little detail. The last time Moses checked, he was a wanted man back in Egypt. He doesn't really want to go back and and be a wanted man again. And God says, but all the men who were seeking your life are dead. You can go now. Grace City, a good father, a good parent, is someone who is gracious and understanding with their children. I don't know about you, but, but in my own parenting experience, one of my deepest regrets are the ways that I sometimes grow frustrated and impatient with my kids for being kids. It's when I react strongly when they're just being kids. And the good news that we see in this text and again and again that we see in Scripture is that our Heavenly Father isn't like me. He's not like you. Psalm 103, verses 13 to 14 say, As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. I think we're meant to be reassured as we looked at these passages of Scripture to know that our Heavenly Father is one who understands our frailty. He's one who knows our weakness. He knows our fears. He knows our sins. He knows our struggles. And you know what? He knows that maturity as a follower of his takes time. He understands that. We should look at this passage and be encouraged that this God, this patient father is with Moses, encouraging his obedience. But he's even more so with us today. He's even more so this encouraging, understanding Father with us because we stand at a point in history after which God himself has already become a human being in the person of Jesus Christ, our Savior. 
He has a full experience in a full human life of all that we go through as human beings in our struggle to obey and to follow God. And he perfectly understands us. He loves to help us. We read it already in our confession and assurance, but I'll read it again. Hebrews 4, 15 to 16 say this about Jesus. It says, We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. This morning, where are you weak? This morning, where are you tempted? Draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. Receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Come to Jesus. He understands you. He's merciful with you. One thing I've learned with my own kids, those who move on to our, our next point, is that they struggle to take their first steps unless uh, I hold up my hands and I, and I show them I'm here. <laughs> my hands are, are there to, to catch you if you fall. Look, it's right here, the right hand, right here, the left hand. You can come to me, walk towards me. Unless I, I both show them my hands and also speak to them with my voice, with words of love and encouragement and a smile, then they won't come. They won't come. They need to be reassured that I am with them, that I love them. And in a similar way, I think in our next point, God assures Moses of salvation with his power and his love. He's reassuring him with both his power and his love. I want to show you that in our next point in verse 20, starting there. There we read this, just a short verse. And Moses took the staff of God in his hand. What's God doing here? Why does he say this? Well, before this in the story, in the book of Exodus, Moses' staff is just called Moses' staff. Do you see the name change? Moses took the staff of God in his hand. And then look at verse 21. God speaks to him and says, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. What's interesting is that the Hebrew word for hand is yod, and it can sometimes be translated power, but not, it's not the most immediate and concrete translation. Actually, the best translation here is that uh, God says, um, uh, do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I've put in your hand. Why the change from plain old staff to now God's staff, the miracles in your hand in these verses? I think God's holding out his hands like this to Moses. I think he's saying, Moses, you aren't the savior. I am. Moses, trust my hands, I am with you. I have empowered you. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. Go forward on the mission that I have called you to. God is with Moses as he steps out to obey. But if we keep reading, in mean, the whole section, we see God doesn't just show Moses that he's with him in his saving power that's present with him and the staff that he's given him. He also assures him of his saving love. Look at verses 21 to 23. And there we read these words. When you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. I will harden his heart so he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he might serve me. 
If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. It's a striking passage. Maybe love isn't the first thing that you see there, but let me show you. See, for God to call Israel his firstborn son is to communicate the central place that they have in God's heart for them. They're the apple of his eye. And in fact, in the ancient understanding, the firstborn son had a special relationship with the father, a special responsibility for the rest of the family, a special tutelage that they had before uh, the rest of the family under him. To call Israel his firstborn son is to signal this special relationship. Hold that in your mind for a second and think about this. I'm going to change tracks abruptly. I'm warning you. You ready? Okay, revenge movies. <laughs> Told you it was abrupt. Revenge movies, they start on the premise, right, often that something awful, something terrible has happened to a person's family. Right? And, and it's an excuse, you know, in the theme of the movie and in Hollywood today, it's an excuse to make a really violent movie. But what I want you to know and what you want you to see is that the premise of a revenge movie only works because of the existence of love. To the other side of the coin of love is fierce protection for the beloved. We know that. We believe that. Think about your own family. What would you not do to run to the rescue of the beloved. And who is God's beloved here? Here he's revealed it's Israel. Israel is my firstborn son. Yahweh has heard his firstborn son crying. And in his fierce protecting love, he is running to save him. Think about how reassuring that must have been for Moses and for the descendants of Abraham. This God loves us. This God is running to our rescue. Think about how terrifying that must have been for Pharaoh. Pharaoh, who, of course, we know in the story, is not innocent. He's already oppressed, enslaved, and committed genocide against God's firstborn son. See, God loves the Israelites. Because of his love, God has determined to crush their mortal foe. How? When we read those troubling and difficult words, we read that he hardens Pharaoh's heart. Again, something interesting in Hebrew. The word is that he strengthens Pharaoh's heart. It's like he stands up Pharaoh to be as strong as Pharaoh can be as the adversary of Yahweh. Why? So that Yahweh himself can display his full strength, can display his love and his vengeance and his justice for all to see as he comes against Pharaoh. Friends, I want you to see the character of God in this passage. He is a God of love. We know that. But the other side of love is, is righteous anger towards those who threaten what is loved. What does God love? He created a good world. He loves the world. A glorious creation. He loves his creation. Human beings in his image and his likeness. He loves them. 
And stand against this God and against his beloved is to wage war against what God loves, and that is a terrifying thing. But there is a place of fiercely protected safety before the judgment that we deserve from God. I'm going to see that in our next point as we consider the way that God disciplines Moses in his sin in verses 24 to 26. And there we read these words. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. It was then that she said, a bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. Were you guys expecting that passage this morning? What a passage, hey? What a difficult passage. It's a wild couple of verses. If they're bewildering to you, you're not alone. I think they're bewildering to us. They were bewildering to me two weeks ago. (laughs) But as I've been studying them, uh, uh, they've they've come to to some clarity. Um, I want to point out that, that this text, when you do this sometimes when we read the Bible, it's removed from our time by thousands of years. It's removed from our culture. It's removed from our language and our customs, right? So sometimes we come to the Bible, and it's not that the passage is just horrible or something. It's that we're so far away from it. We need to do a lot of unpacking to see it. And in fact, when you start to unpack this passage, as I've spent some time doing this week, you see that it fits beautifully, actually, right in with the rest of the passage. It's there by intention. It has something to teach us. So I want to try to unpack that for you guys and help you to see that there's something here for us, even though it strikes us as kind of crazy. So, so here's, here's uh, what we're going to do. Um, I want to show you this, but I'm going to start by setting up the situation to the metaphor that I've been using so far about, about children. And here's the angle into this point uh, as Moses is disciplined for his sin as we look at this passage. See, as children grow... They need discipline, and they need correction. It's reality. It's reality because no human is born righteous, but every human being, every one of us, is born with a bent toward a sinful independence from God. We're bent towards uh, moving away from God and towards our own sin that is foolish and disastrous. And in that situation, what is a loving parent to do? I think what a loving parent does is a parent corrects their children with necessary force to keep them from driving the car of their life over a cliff in their rebellion. This is a point, I think, that's all about God walking with Moses on his first steps, being willing to discipline and to correct Moses. I'm going to try and show you that. So there's a disobedience in this passage that we need to recognize Even though Moses has begun to follow God, there's an area of his life that is still deeply disobedient to God. An area of his life that needs to be dealt with if he will be and can be used by God to be the deliverer that he's called him to be. What is that disobedience? Well, the issue is that one of Moses' sons wasn't circumcised. And I'm guessing that it was the firstborn Gershom because that would fit in the passage as we're going to see in a second. And why did circumcision matter? Because that doesn't really help us at all, right? We're like, circumcision, so what? What's the big deal? 
Well, circumcision in the Bible and with the Hebrew people and their covenant with God, it was a sign of the covenant that God gave to Abraham and his sons to indicate that he and his children belonged to Yahweh. It was a sign that was essential for them to bear in their physical bodies if they were to continue to be God's people. See, as God makes his covenant promises in the Bible, his end of the covenant, his end of the promise is to bless the people in all the ways that he said that he would. He's committed to doing that. But Abraham and his descendants ended the covenant. It was to obey God by obeying God and in part by obeying God in showing the covenant sign of circumcision and being marked in their bodies. I belong to Yahweh. How? Because I bear the mark of the covenant sign. I follow God. Every first or every son was to be circumcised. And if anyone was not circumcised, God said this in Genesis chapter 17, verse 14, where he's talking with Abraham long before about this covenant. He says, any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off, nice pun, from his people. He has broken my covenant, right? There's a connection there. He's broken my covenant. So here's the context in our passage. Understand, this is what's going on. This is God's covenant with his people. What's happening in our passage then? Well, the context of our passage is this. Moses, the deliverer of God's firstborn, the Israelites, he was supposed to tell Pharaoh that disobedience to God would result in the death of his firstborn son. Meanwhile, Moses himself has neglected to obey God when it came to his firstborn son, Gershom. Something in his life's not right. And how could God be just in punishing Pharaoh's disobedience when his own deliverer is so persistently and egregiously disobeying this commandment to bear the covenant sign of circumcision. And we'll continue. There's another reason why this passage is concerning and confusing because more, more than just the circumcision bit, um, it's confusing to us because of that, that language that it begins with. The Lord sought to put Moses to death. We're like, What? Didn't he just call him like moments before at Mount Horeb? And I think that we need to come at this at the right angle. <clears throat> you see, we know from the rest of Scripture that God is certainly capable of putting someone to death immediately if he wants to. So I don't think we should read, the Lord sought to put Moses to death as though Zippor was just a little too quick and God was a little bit too slow. Ah, oh, shoot, missed him. Maybe next time. And that's not how we're to read this text. No, I think what we're to read is that God appears, God himself appears in judgment. In the context in chapter 3, how does Yahweh reveal himself? He's come before Moses as the angel of the Lord. I think here he appears to him again. He reveals himself in his judgment. We know Christ today, the Bible teaches the wages of sin, the wages of disobedience is death. Paul, the apostle says that in Romans chapter 6 verse 23. But in God's mercy, what has he done? He's allowed for Moses' sin to be set right. He's allowed in this moment someone else to step up. And that shows us that God's intention here is not to destroy Moses, but to correct Moses. To correct the disobedience. And who steps up? Zipporah steps up, Moses' wife. She acts as mediator. A mediator is someone who stands between, between two parties. There's a conflict. The mediator works to bring the conflict to resolution and bring the parties together again. 
Zipporah steps up as the, medi- as the mediator. And notice this, by the way, this marks the sixth time in Moses' life that he's saved by a woman. He had two midwives who saved his life. He had his sister Miriam save his life. He had his mother, Yochebed, save his life. That's Jochebed in the Hebrew pronunciation. She saved his life. He has Pharaoh's daughter save his life. And here, Zipporah saves Moses' life. She's the mediator. And in verses 25 to 26, we read what she did. Then Zipporah took a flint and she cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. So what's going on here? There's still so much to unpack. What's happening is this. Zipporah, she acts as mediator between God's judgment and Moses' disobedience. I think in a way that pleases God. And God's very pleased with the situation. She sets things right. Right? She takes care of the area of lingering disobedience. And Gershom is circumcised. And she makes atonement, I think, for Moses' sin by touching the blood of the circumcision to his feet. It's interesting language that's used. It's this Hebrew word, nagah, to, to touch. And um, it, it's the same word that's used later on in the story uh, when the blood of the lamb is touched to the doorposts and the lintels. So this destroying angel, the angel of judgment against Egypt, passes by the Israelites. There's an atonement foreshadowing that happens here. And as a result, I think we're meant to read that last bit, surely you're a bridegroom of blood to me, like she's rejoicing. It's not like, ah, man, Moses, that bridegroom of blood. It's positive. And actually, there's a a long history of of Hebrew readings, Jewish readings of this text that see it positively, because she's rejoicing that God has allowed a way for her and her family to continue in covenant relationship with Yahweh. And she celebrates that. That's a lot. That's a passage. The next question is, what are we to learn from this episode? <laughs> How does that have bearing in our lives? It does. I think the first thing that we learn from it is that God, Christ said, and you need to know this, we need to really grapple with this this morning. God takes obedience seriously in the lives of his children. He does. In the lives of those he loves. We're told that in Hebrews chapter 12 that a father disciplines the children he loves, that God disciplines those he loves. He cares about our obedience. He's willing to do what is needed to turn us away from disobedience that brings death. He's willing to do what's needed to draw us closer to himself in life. And if God had not appeared to Moses in terrible judgment in this passage and given him the opportunity for things to be made right, Moses would have been destroyed, according to Genesis 17. That's the first thing. God takes obedience seriously. Second, we learn in this passage, we see some foreshadowing that God is a God who loves mediation and loves atonement. He's a God who loves mediation and atonement. As we've already mentioned, we see the way that this story, it foreshadows God's own actions that he will work later on in the story through Moses in the book of Exodus. Right? God, who is so pleased to make a way for the blood to touch the doors of the people of Israel, for judgment to pass by them. 
God loves atonement. God, who later on through Aaron will set up a whole Levitical priesthood where blood will be spattered all over the place to cover the sins of the Israelites, to bring them and to atone for their sin and bring them into relationship with God. But there's more here because a day would come later on in the Exodus. We're going to get to this probably September next year, early October, when Israel, God's firstborn son, would heinously disobey him at the foot of Mount Sinai and Moses would be standing in the gap. And Moses would be the mediator between God and his righteous judgment and the disobedience of his people. I think God is pleased with these situations. God loves righteous mediation. He loves atonement. But in this story, I think we see hints of still another future day. Another firstborn son. A greater mediator and a greater atonement. A day when God would allow his sword of judgment to fall upon the shoulders of Jesus Christ. After all, we could ask in this story, what does the blood of circumcision, or the blood of a lamb, the blood of a sacrificial system on a doorpost or anything else, what does that really do for human sin? Can that blood truly take away my sin and make things right before God? And the answer is no. The author of Hebrews writes in Hebrews 10 verse 4, It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Speaking of the sacrificial system. But there is a blood that can. See, if the precious firstborn son of God, Jesus Christ, if he were to be offered in exchange for the judgment that we deserve, that would be enough to satisfy the holy justice of God. Christ, this is what has happened. 2,000 years ago when Jesus Christ died on the cross, it's a payment for our sin. And that means that today we have a choice. Hear this, listen to this. It means that there are two places where we can choose to experience God's righteous judgment. Under the cross of Jesus, with his blood dripping down and covering us as he bears the judgment for us. Or under the full heat of God's judgment when Jesus returns. See, God's desire for you and I, just like his desire was for Moses, is to take refuge under the mediator he has provided. His desire is for us to take refuge under the atoning blood that he has shed for us. So can I speak to you this morning? If you're not yet someone who's come to take refuge in the love of God shown to you at the cross of Jesus, would you do that this morning? When you come to him, when you confess, God, I have sinned, <laughs> done a whole mess of stuff in, in my life that has hurt this world that you love and the people around me that you love and even me that you love. And I rightly deserve your judgment. And when you come before God and say, God, but I want to take refuge in Jesus the Savior that you've sent for me. Confess your need. He says, he promises in his word that he saves all who call upon the name of Jesus. Confess your need and call upon him this morning.
And turn with me to our last point, how God is with Moses, filling him with thanksgiving. And just think again about a child's first steps. What happens, back to the image of the child and the, and the first steps, what happens when the child gets to mom or dad as the child's walking towards them? There's celebration. There's rejoicing. We have disproportionate, crazy, you know, Canada won the Olympics kind of celebrations in my household for every child that, that makes its way across the floor to mom and dad. I think what's going on here is similar to that. There's a celebration in verses 27 to 31 as Moses completes his first steps of obedience. There we read this. The Lord said to Aaron, go into the wilderness and meet Moses. Brothers have been separated for 40 years. For more than that, I guess, actually. 40 years growing up in Egypt, 40 years in Midian. It's been a long time. And he went and he met him at the mountain of God and he kissed him. And Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord, which he had sent him to speak and all the signs that he had commanded him to do. And then Moses and Aaron went and they gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel, just like God had commanded. And Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people. And the people believed when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel, that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and they worshiped. See, Moses has come now full circle. He's back at Mount Horeb, the mountain of God, where God first revealed himself to him. Aaron's there with him. They're meeting together and Moses is welcomed by Aaron with a kiss. It's a joyful reconciliation. And there Moses shares all the words the Lord had spoken to him. And he tells them to Aaron. And they both go together and they leave and they go to Egypt. And they talk to the elders of the people of Israel, just like God told them to. And then Aaron speaks the words of the Lord as Moses' mouthpiece, just like God provided Aaron to be for Moses. And Aaron does his signs just as God commanded and as God provided. And even though Moses earlier in the chapter, he'd been afraid that the people would not listen the people believe that Yahweh has visited them. They hear the words, they believe he's heard us, he's heard our prayers, he's seen us, and he's come to save us. And as a result, everyone bows their heads together to Yahweh and worships. They give thanks and they celebrate God's faithfulness. There's a lot of different kinds of seasons in our lives, Christ City. Some seasons are full of suffering and difficulty. Some seasons full of hard work and labor and we just can't get a break. In some seasons, God in his mercy gives us a moment like this. Where we just look back and we see how he's been so faithful. How he's answered, his, uh, answered our prayers and fulfilled his promises. And those seasons are meant to encourage us, to fill us with joy and thanksgiving and worship, and to send us out again in obedience because we know that in this life it won't always be easy. And in fact, the next chapter gets hard again. But here's a moment of reprieve, a moment of God with Moses, with his people, encouraging them and filling them with thanksgiving in himself. City, I want you to see then in all these ways in the encouragement that God gives to Moses to obey, 
and the way that he walks with him and disciplines him and the way that he fills him with thanksgiving in all the ways in this passage, notice how God then is with Moses. Moses maybe didn't think that God was with him every step of the way, but God was with Moses. You know, the promise of the gospel that is if you trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior, this same God is your God. He is with you. Jesus himself said when he was on earth, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. It's God who's come to us, who dwells within us by his Holy Spirit. And that means that the joy of every Christian journeying through life in our sin, in our obedience, in our struggle for faith, in every area, God is with us and he will never leave us. He will never forsake us. Remember that. Let me ask you, where might you be overlooking his presence with you today? And where can you serve him with courage and the confidence that he is with you this week? Will you pray with me? God, we come to you and we come, oh Lord, just so thankful for Jesus. Our Savior who knows us, understands us through his spirit who is with us. God, we praise you for your presence. We praise you for your love and your mercy. And we ask would you open our eyes to see you according to your word, according to your promises, and to trust you in our lives today. And God, for those who do not yet know you in this room, I pray that you would turn them in faith to Jesus Christ. That they would accept your great love for them. That they would believe in Jesus. They would trust and be saved. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.